so this is uh, the first of two panels entitled, What is to be done? Uh, I sternly disapprove of Che Guevara t-shirts, but I have a weakness for Marx's catchphrases. Um, we have, uh, uh, in this first panel, uh, people who are distinguished academic economists. In our second panel, also some distinguished economists, but people who are more focused uh, on, uh, <coughs> on the nitty-gritty of policy wonkery uh, and things Washingtonian. Um, but uh, in the uh, initial panel, uh, we have uh, Brad DeLong from uh, University of California at Berkeley and also affiliated with the Washington Center for Equitable Growth. Uh, we have Edward Glazer uh, from Harvard University, also affiliated with the Manhattan Institute. And we have Edmund Phelps from Columbia University and the 2006 winner of the Nobel, <coughs> Nobel Prize in Economics. Um, each of these, uh, so for uh, today, uh, we're going to focus on the question uh, that I asked uh, the panelists and that I asked uh, dozens of other uh, experts, which is, uh, if you could uh, wave a magic wand and change one or two policies or institutions of the United States to improve long-term uh, economic growth prospects, what would you do and why? Uh, Brad, uh, you, uh, you had three waves of the magic wand, yes. uh, so uh, you're, you're the pace setter. Go ahead and, uh, and briefly sketch out uh, how you would change well, the world for the better. First, let me fly my Keynesian or perhaps my monetarist um, freak flag <laughs> and say that what should be done about the U.S. economy as a whole is what Milton Friedman said back in 1999 should be done about the Japanese economy, um, that they should raise the money stock, right? Buy treasury bonds, buy non-treasury mm -hmm. bonds, buy other bonds, um, buy things that aren't bonds, but that nevertheless are things that you can buy money from. If the problem with quantitative easing is people fear that quantitative easing can be reversed, do something that isn't quantitative easing buy bridges or human capital for 12-year-olds rather than bonds, and keep expanding the money stock until nominal GDP is back at the target um, it was at before all this began, and thus that people's expectations about what values overall would be and the price level would be um, are consonant with what they were back when everyone made their plans. Um, keeping nominal GDP on target is the first requisite for having a market system do a good job as a societal allocation mechanism. Uncle Milton thought that if you simply had relatively narrow banking and focused on having the money stock grow at an automatic rate, that would be enough. Um, that was wrong. Um, we need to do a bunch more. Macroeconomic rebalancing is the first. <clears throat> That's the easiest. That barely requires a wand at all save for the fact that every sing that no single um, member of the Federal Open Market Committee right now is as radical as Milton Friedman was back in 1979. Um, second, you know, as Ed Lazier and John Heckman tirelessly point out, we got used to paying our K through 12 teachers salaries that we needed to pay them in order to attract the teachers we wanted back when women had very few other opportunities in the labor market. And thus we collectively exploited them as a class in order to boost our K through 12 education system. Um, that's over. We haven't adjusted. Um, that we haven't adjusted to that is one of the major problems of our K through 12 educational system today. Um, how to do the adjusting 
is a horribly complicated and nasty problem, how to do the adjustment without handing out huge rents to undeserved people who then will teach badly is even worse. Um, I don't know if that's low-hanging fruit. It certainly isn't low-hanging fruit, but it is a place where we could wave the magic wand. Um, And third... And your proposal um, was a a swap of a big increase for teachers' pay in exchange for some sort of end to teacher tenure. Yes, this is a kind of hopelessly building a bipartisan coalition mode. Um, (laughs) um, All about hopeless. What? (laughs) Let's see. Um, And third, of course, immigration. Right now, we have 300 million people in the United States. Um, Right now, I suspect there are a billion people who would like to live in the United States, especially considering how hard it proves to be to move institutions to people and how easier it is to move people to institutions. Um, We've always been a country of immigrants, um, in spite of the protests of the Amerindians, to whose benefit it was not necessarily such. Um, you know, but ever since my West Country ancestors showed up here in 1600, we've been letting people in. Um, people from the home counties of England. Um, Scotsmen, Irishmen, um, even Welshmen. Um, <coughs> then moving on to Germans. Um, don't laugh, right? Um, my great-grandmother swore to her dying day that there was an important genetic psychological difference between people from the Severn Valley on the one hand and people from the home counties on the other and Welshmen on the third. Um, <laughs> genuinely different races. Um, you know, um, tripling or almost tripling immigration from one million to two and a half million a year to 0.75% of the population. Um, everywhere else in the world, those who want social stasis are terrified of our culture. Um, they may admire us, they may despise us, but they are terrified of the enormous absorptive capacity of people who see what we are and what we do and their enormous liking wanting to become Americans. And yet are we seriously considered that raising immigration above its current 0.3% of the population per year will in some way disrupt our culture? And are we fearful enough that our politics is so broken that we can't figure out how to make increased immigration genuinely win-win when already for a 20-year-old to crawl through a storm sewer from Tijuana to San Diego, um, that boosts the present value of world GDP by 200,000 bucks in total, even without giving the green card, which boosts it to 400,000. If we can't find a way to distribute that 400,000, what are we? Um, And let me stop there. Uh, Ed, you uh, led with uh, a recommendation that grows out of your, uh, your primary areas of research, but then you tacked on a bunch of other things that you thought were important, too. Uh, so why don't you give us, matching uh, Brad, why don't you give us your main uh, sure. recommendation and then a couple sure. of Sure, a- absolutely. I, I, I follow this odd structure in part because I, I was trying to you know, say what I think I, I know while still in some sense adhering to the spirit of the request. Uh, the, the problem is, of course, that the request was for something that we felt confident would boost growth rates of the U.S. And there's very little that I can say that I'm really confident will boost growth rates of the United States in some sort of perpetual motion kind of machine. Probably smart investments in schooling, uh, which to me <clears throat> involve more experimentation, more, more competition, more innovation are probably the closest thing that we've got. So I didn't want to focus entirely on schooling. I wanted to be much more free-ranging. And as such, I, I took the question to mean, Good stuff for America. That things things that I, I, I thought would be relatively relatively and better. raising the level of output and means rate level. changes that's, for that's some right. period. And of time. the short run, right? At least raising the output of, of America. America does that. Um, 
So I really focused on a couple of things, uh, the first of which was exactly this point about land use regulations. And, and this, of course, is my personal hobby, hobby and has been for about 10 years, because I believe America has had a redefinition, a revolution in property rights over the last 50 years that has, by and large, gone unremarked, unstudied. That to a first order approximation in the 1960s, if you wanted to build a project in coastal California, you would just go ahead and go ahead and build it. And if somebody needed to get bribed for that to happen, you would bribe them, and it would it would move forward, and it would all be swell and good. Okay. Today, of course, to a first order approximation, every resident <clears> of <throat> Berkeley gets to turn down any project gets a personal veto on not only every project in Berkeley, but really every project in the Bay Area, right? So, so we moved to a completely different regime about how much growth we can have. Now, this may seem like the sort of picayune thing that only someone who's obsessed with local government can care about, but it really, really matters. Because the ability to build is the ability of the nation to respond to differences in productivity across space. And make no mistake, America is a country with vast differences in productivity across space. GM, gross domestic product per capita in, I won't even take the extremes of McAllen and Brownsville, which are about $23,000 per capita, but in let's say Lebanon, Pennsylvania, <clears throat> right, a place that I actually drive through with some degree of regularity, it's, it's in the low 30s in terms of current dollars. Current GDP per capita in the San Jose metropolitan area, about $110,000 per capita. In Boston, it's in the low 80s, right? This is BEA, BEA data. I'm not correcting for anything, and there are issues, there are issues with what you, can, what you can do on this. But by any reasonable measure, America has huge differences in productivity. Now, historically, we responded to that by moving vast amounts of people, as Brad just suggested, moving vast amounts of people to areas that were more productive. Think of the millions of people who came to New York in the late 19th century. Think of the millions who came to Chicago, who came to places that had just an enormous advantage at manufacturing, at trade, at turning human capital into, into gold, if you will. Um, in the 21st century, that doesn't happen because, in fact, the right population of San Jose, of Silicon Valley, which probably from a purely economic point of view, even internalizing whatever externalities, is probably 10 times the size that it, current, it currently is. But they're not there because Santa Clara County has some areas that have 60-acre minimum lot sizes. 60-acre minimum lot sizes, right, that they've essentially said no to growth. This is an area in which there is no conflict between the libertarian and the progressive, right, because, in fact, the regulations that bind building are ones that not only make the economy less productive, that not only restrict a, a homeowner's freedom of what to do with their own property, but they also make housing more expensive for poorer Americans. So it's an area in which there's clearly commonality. I will just say one other area in which... Um, I'm not going to say anything about, about building political coalitions on this. I'm happy to talk about the politics later. It's, it's very hard outside of, large, uh, outside of large cities. But I always thought hopelessness was actually an attractive thing in a public policy proposal rather than as something to uh, make dead on, dead on arrival. Um, on the more pragmatic sense, uh, I've been working on, on something actually with the city of Boston on an entrepreneurship district in a higher poverty area. And the idea of this type of entrepreneurship district is, is that there are a bunch of areas in which we don't know what works. So, for example, vocational training was brought up early. Vocational training is a great idea. It would be great to have more skills delivered, particularly to lower-income American kids. Coding, working as an auto mechanic, being a carpenter, all of these are great things to learn. Uh, so you'd think, you know, vocational training, great. 
The biggest educational disaster in the Boston metropolitan area right now is our vocational training magnet school, right? It is an unmitigated disaster. It's at 30% of capacity. Its test scores are absolutely abysmal. Um, we've got to figure out a better way of doing this. And it's not possible to just say, well, the Germans know how to do it so we can copy them. That's not going to work in every area of the U.S. automatically. Um, we need to actually experiment. We need almost assuredly competitively provided programs <clears> and <throat> evaluated with randomized control trials. We need to try a whole bunch of different things. And that's the idea of an entrepreneurship district, is you start with a spatially defined area so that you're not trying to do everything everywhere at once, and you try things, and then the things that work scale up. This is completely different than an idea what, you know, that we actually have, empowerment zones, which are actually bribing people to locate in higher poverty areas. I've long been deeply critical of, of this policy, right, that we should be about helping poor people, not poor places. But it's a totally different thing to say, in areas where you're not sure what works, Let's try something first. Now, I'll say you know, just one other thing that we're, we're almost assuredly going to have in this, which is something actually I do feel pretty confident that works, but I just need the evidence <clears throat> to make the case at the state level politically, and that's one-stop permitting. Regardless yes. of how many permits, how many regulations you think there should be, and I certainly think at the state and local level there should be less, and I certainly believe very strongly that we should be assiduously applying cost-benefit analysis to any <clears throat> regulations that are put in place. But regardless of what you think about it, almost assuredly, a new entrepreneur who wants to get started should be able to go to one place to get his permits, right? This is something that the Devons Enterprise Commission has been doing for the last decade. New York has been trying to move towards it with their uh, new business acceleration team. Um, there's no reason not to, not to do this, not to speed up the permitting process. The easy political wedge for getting this forward is in a higher poverty area. We can sell this in a way that's much easier than a, than, a, than a rich area. And if we can make the case that it works there and it's manageable, we can scale it up for the entire city. So it's, it's the entrepreneurship district as a learning machine to try and figure out how to solve some pretty intractable problems. Ned, uh, in this online growth forum that we're running, we have a, uh, a whole raft of of uh, clever, outside the box, and uh, very sturdy, dependable, uh, long-standing uh, uh, warhorse policy ideas, um, but all in the sort of wonk space of ways to twist this public policy this way or twist that one uh, uh, in a in a very sort of technocratic way to improve the output of the economy. Uh, in your most recent book, Mass Flourishing, uh, you. Uh, posit uh, that there has been a decline of dynamism in, uh, in uh, the U.S. economy, but you point, uh, and you make policy recommendations at the end of the book, but your diagnosis goes much deeper than policy flaws. You look at a, a cultural shift uh, that has taken place since the 1960s uh, and one that has been uh, uh, quite unfavorable for economic dynamism. Uh, maybe you can uh, uh, tell the audience a little bit about that thesis. Love to do that. Um, in essence, uh, my perspective is that a nation's culture is crucial to the dynamism that's required for indigenous innovation in a nation. <clears throat> um, now, what about today's culture in this country? Well, I think there's been an enormous rise of materialism for a century. Uh, Kids are being brought up to seek the highest paycheck uh, consistent with job security. Uh, this has a very direct effect on the supply of innovation, I think. Um, if, if money is the only metric that matters, if, if wealth and wealth inequality become the focus in society, uh, 
rather than adventure and exploration and creativity, then uh, there's not going to be very much um, innovative activity. Uh, and I think that's a big part of, a significant part of why innovation has dropped off in this country, particularly uh, big innovation. Of course, people working, uh, making microscopic, so to speak, changes uh, is, is a different case. Uh, <clears throat> as a result of this money culture, I think we also get uh, the short-termism that's been talked about a lot. It's in the nature of the craving for money that people want it now, or at least as soon as possible, not in the last year or the last decade of their life. As a consequence, financial people, uh, for example, want to be paid on the basis of current profits with little or no uh, clawback. I'm not sure that's the right term. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> um, businesses are under pressure to meet quantitative earnings targets, to meet uh, quarterly earnings targets, so as not to jeopardize um, capital gains uh, for the financial uh, people. Uh, <clears throat> next, uh, I get to corporatism. Um, corporatism is a, you know, a philosophy of society and a philosophy of the state. And I argue that corporatist attitudes and norms, if they're strong enough in a country, have profound effects on the nation's economy. Um, <clears throat> people organize into interest groups. That's approved of. They organize into interest groups to protect their money or the jobs that, uh, that they need uh, to make their money. So you get rampant social protection of interest groups and individuals. And, 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 and the byproduct or a byproduct of that is it makes it hard for newcomers aspiring to innovate uh, to get to, to break into an industry and to attempt to displace uh, incumbents. The incumbents will come back to life thanks to the state. And that's a deterrent for innovation. Um, <clears throat> uh, another corporatist effect the last one I'll touch on is um, the protect uh, is is uh, another aspect of the protection of established firms, or their work their workers or their owners or or their managers. Um, this social protection of of uh, incumbents not only keeps out outsiders from innovating, it reduces their own desire to engage in defensive innovation. They don't have to do in a, in a defensive innovation anymore. And moreover, with, with the reduced fear of new entrants, they're free to raise their markups. So we get sky-high profits and depressed real wages. And I think we've seen uh, both of those uh, symptoms in, in uh, recent years. So from, what, from this perspective, uh, what to do? Well, um, obviously, uh, the message is that um, nations have to shed their, their corporatist values and their uh, materialist uh, and their ma 
their materialism and short-termism, uh, how can that be accomplished? I, I think it has to, I, I think it's necessary for families and schools uh, to, to uh, bring up children and educate children uh, to appreciate a life of uh, adventure, of exploration, of, uh, of uh, exercising curiosity, exercising imagination, exercising creativity. Um, as I'm sure many of you know, uh, the humanists uh, in this country have been uh, raising a hue and cry about the need to get the classics back into the schoolroom. And, and I think that fits very well with the um, need to have that kind of education if we're going to get spirited, intrepid uh, in, um, innovators. Harkening back to this morning's session uh, with some uh, with lots of data by John Haltewanger on uh, a decline in dynamism, we have Ned Phelps's uh, broader cultural view of a decline in <coughs> dynamism. But then we had uh, pushback from uh, uh, both Amar Bide and Alex Tabarrok. Uh, what's what's your take? Do you do you are you gloomy about about the the kind of mojo of the U.S. economy put aside policies, but this but is the is the uh, intensity and pace of creative destruction, which in the '90s we thought had ascended to new highs, uh, and uh, then we've still been ever since been trying to figure out uh, uh, what happened, uh, but um, but it certainly seemed like. Uh, we had this efflorescence of entrepreneurial dynamism at that time, and yet you look at these time series and you see these kind of declining indicators of entrepreneurialism. I find it very puzzling to try to put those t two things together in my mind without my brain hurting. Uh, so uh, what's, what's your take? Um, well, if you spend any time in and around Silicon Valley, it's very hard not to be a techno-optimist, singulitarian uh, believer in impossible and un foreseeable futures. Um, if you put on your economist's hat and you say, hmm, what is measured economic growth? Uh, well, really, measured economic growth is moving over into the price duel. And you know, we don't know how <coughs> to measure economic growth across centuries or half millennia in which standards of living are so incredibly different. Um, we do know that we can measure economic growth in the short term by asking each year how much cheaper does it become in labor time to produce exactly what we produced last year. And that produces the number about 2% per year. Um, Robert Gordon thinks it's going to be something like 1.3% per year over the future. You know, Eric <laughs> thinks it's going to be somewhat higher. Um, the thing that Silicon Valley gets you is it gets you wondering about the value of all the things that are moving out of the kind of priced Smithian rival and excludable commodities um, realm. Um, the fact that starting in the 1960s, people began spending two hours a night watching network television, which never entered the national income and product accounts at all, except as a minus, right? It was an intermediate good. The coming of network television means that if you have to buy a car, you not only have to buy a car, you have to make a commercial. 
right? You have to fly the car to the top of a mountain in Northern California and put people doing interesting and attractive things around it. Um, and then buy the airtime in order to sell the car. That becomes part of selling a car. That wasn't part of a selling a car before network television. The GDP accounts see this and they record this as a productivity decline. And yet if we look at what people like to do with their time, um, the amount of consumer surplus they gained from watching their Bullwinkle and their Scooby-Doo uh, was truly unimaginable. Um, but Bullwinkle moved. was pretty great. That is <laughs> still yeah. pretty great. Uh, Bullwinkle is still pretty great. I'm going to OD on George of the Jungle next week. Um, you know, that you know, Bob Barrow laid down as a rule of thumb that when you're dealing with normal goods, um, rival and excludable goods produced under competitive conditions with constant returns to scale. The right thing to think is the consumer surplus is about equal to the factor cost. He wants to deny knowledge of this. That's fine, but he did say it once. Um, that doesn't hold with information goods or advertising supported goods or anything that's given away for free because it's too cheap to meter or anything that's given away for free um, because, you know, um, what, you're really, what you can only charge for is the eyeballs of the people who are consuming the real product and getting the real consumer surplus. And these Eric Brynjolfsson-like points seem to me to be weighty and powerful and important um, and to overwhelm the lack of dynamism arguments, save possibly for worries about how our small and startup businesses um, are already overloaded in terms of us acting that, want demanding that they act as intermediaries in the social insurance state. Um, and we aren't thinking very well or very clearly about how to accomplish this or how to make their burdens as small as possible. Um, especially since small and startup businesses um, you know, are an exploited class. They work like dogs and most of them fail. Um, and most of them who don't fail wind up making relatively low hourly wages. You know, I, I want to I want to profoundly associate myself with a view that that I view you know the next forty years of whether it's TFP or productivity gro growth as being profoundly uncertain and something that I want to confess deep and and unending ignorance of in, in, in any real sense even more than my unwillingness to to even more than my willingness to confess ignorance of what we should be doing about monetary policy which is okay. also up there. Um, I I found myself agreeing both with. Bob Gordon's pessimistic views in, in many years, but also with the sort of very bright and very optimistic uh, views that, that Eric expressed. I mean, they really are miraculous things that we've seen happen over the last, uh, over the last 10 years, and I just don't see that that's, that that's gonna stop. When I think about what I worry about, I'm not gonna go back over my worries about the Haltewanger fact of the decline in the number of new businesses. That is worrisome. <clears throat> And it is, it is worrisome from my perspective in part because the evidence at the metropolitan area level that an abundance of small firms is associated with good dynamic outcomes, particularly employment growth, is so strong, right? So we have that, that, we have that, that work going back to the 1950s, but both places with lots of small firms, within those places, those sectors with lots of small firms, have done much better than those places that are marked by large, large dynamic firms. So it makes me anxious. Um, and I fear that you know, some, some rise in the power of the over-regulatory state has something to do with it. Um, but what really, really worries me, more so than any slowdown in productivity growth, more so than really any, any America's social problems, is the rise of joblessness. And I think the fact that sticks in my mind, and I'll, I'll make two caveats on it, but you know, the, the fact that sticks in my mind is that when I was born in 1967, one in 20 
prime-aged males, 25 to 54, were jobless. Today, this number is 17%. Now, I, I focus on males both because the issues of female labor force participation are just more complicated. And they're just, it's just, just it's, not, it's not any lack of concern for women who want jobs and don't, don't have them. I also... The problem is. <laughs> well, I'm not even going to say that. I'm just going to say that the measurement is more difficult than it is with, than it is with men. The second point is I don't mean to exclude young people who are, you know, who are jobless. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's also a problem. But this problem of joblessness feels to me like it is just a huge problem, and we don't know what the right answer to it. I will say that we know two things that can help, right? We know that improving the quality of educational delivery systems, improving the quality of education matters. And I want to, you know, hopefully Phelps can come back to this, right? Because I think actually the ideas that he put forward, what, maybe a decade ago in terms of, of increasing the incentives to work, getting, getting to a higher effective wage for people who are entering the labor force, not by punishing the Walmarts of the world who are doing what we should hope every entrepreneur does and actually employ more skilled people by raising the minimum wage, but instead by actually effectively subsidizing, subsidizing the wage feels to me at least like something that has some promise, even if it's just eliminating the payroll tax for low-income for low workers, but something that moves the step back. But I think the, the larger point is that these are sort of small microeconomic fixes, but you know many of the larger issues are cultural, and I agree with Ed completely on the cultural on the cultural challenges. I just don't know how to fix that outside of, outside of my own family, I guess, and I'm not even sure I know how to fix it. Children, <laughs> but the um... uh, there's all sorts of other evidence of of some sort of a decline of uh, a, a decline in the uh, rate at which or decline in the in the degree to which people are exercising their imagination, their creativity uh, in the economy. Uh, uh, attitudinal surveys, such as we're very familiar with now, uh, don't go back very far. They don't, I don't think they go back before 1970 uh, to speak of. So it's, it's a little hard to, to, to hold up the numbers and say, look, I've got a smoking gun here. But I, I think that just reading around the literature, uh, it, it, it's pretty, it, it, I think that there's more expression of job dissatisfaction uh, in, in the past decade or two than I ever heard uh, before, even in the, even in the uh, much criticized uh, 1950s, uh, when, when people used to say that the workplace was a bit gray. Um, and I, I, think, I think what's happened here is that in the heartland, uh, f- for the reasons I mentioned, but for other reasons that others have mentioned, there's been a, a tremendous uh, drop-off in innovation. And uh, a lot of very unskilled workers have been uh, displaced by new kinds of capital machines and, and smart machines. And... Uh, at, at the same time, with a drop in the price of consumer goods, that means a rise in the relative price, relative prices of things that the investment sector produces. So you get an increased demand, I think, for uh, um, advanced workers, high-skilled workers. So uh, it's a complex uh, situation, but uh, I, I do think that the that the, the, the drying up of innovation, uh, maybe that's the, not the best term, uh, but the, 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 the sharp decline of innovation in the heartland of the country is at the core of, of every, almost everything uh, we see. And we've got to remember that Silicon Valley is only 3% of the GDP. It can't save us. 
Just to <clears throat> continue to push on this uh, loss of dynamism thesis and uh, cultural uh, trends that may be playing into that. Just, the, I think, one of the huge takeaways for anybody who's new to these data from this morning's sessions looking at Dale's and, and John's talk is just how utterly dependent productivity growth has been since 1970 on IT production, which now has more or less was never a large part of US GDP, and now we're moving, we've moved most of it offshore in recent years, apparently. So it, it, the rest of the economy has added virtually zilch to productivity growth for decades, and that is, that's an astonishing and arresting uh, fact uh, or mismeasurement, one or the other. Um, uh, it uh, harkens to Peter Thiel's line uh, that uh, all the innovation we've seen is in bits uh, where the regulators uh, don't play, but in the world of atoms where regulators are in charge, we've seen uh, innovation dynamism slow to a standstill, and that comports very nicely with the, the statistics we've seen. Uh, and we might think, well, why is that? And certainly uh, you see it in land use regulation, nimbyism, and just in general how affluence breeds risk aversion and loss aversion and, and super health consciousness to irrational levels. Uh, there does seem to have been a real cultural move with mass affluence to uh, a kind of uh, dispiriting, uh, uh, innervating uh, risk aversion. And maybe you can... Uh, React to that and tell me I'm out to lunch. Oh, of course you're. Of course you're. You're right. I mean, and and I think the land use issue is an area which is completely clean. That in fact, you know, to for most people, they have a new project that's built near with them. It makes absolutely no big negative effect on their life whatsoever. Five years afterwards, there's nothing that particularly particularly matters. And it would do even less if we actually priced congestion properly or did something that was actually sensible around around dealing with the with the congestion issue. And yet, to hear my neighbors, my neighbors, I, I happen to live in a in a global capital of nimbyism. It's uh, <laughs> to hear my neighbors, you know, argue that somehow or other the entire spirit of our area would be destroyed if this poor little, you know college in the, in the south side of the town put up a little home for elderly people, that it would somehow or other be a disaster for the character, the character of the town. I mean, it's the level of just fear and fear-mongering that can occur in this is terrifying. And what's, what really kills you is the extent to which, look, new buildings can be incredibly exciting things. They can be, you know, places that, that are providing new space for people. They can be places that transform an urban landscape. If our approach is going to be to say no to everything, our cities are going to become incredibly dull. I think you see this both in terms of suburbanites for whom the, um, you know, the, the, the propaganda, if you will, the, the, the story is environmental, even when the environmentalism makes no sense. Because in fact, from an environmental point of view, if you wanted to reduce America's carbon emissions, the what you'd want to do is build massive amounts of high-rise housing near Berkeley. Right? Because, in fact, the energy required in Berkeley is just much lower than any other part of the, part of the country in coastal California because of the moderate weather and because they've got lots of public transit, which is, of course, why all those Berkeley environmentalists are just cheering for more development every, everywhere. Um, the, uh, the, 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 the other side, of course, in cities is, is preservationism. It's this notion that every old building needs to be protected. Now, my father was an architectural historian, so I actually do believe that occasionally having some degree of historic preservation is, is a thing that's part of city building. But you know, not every mundane glazed brick building on the Upper East Side of Manhattan needs to be protected. Um, and indeed, some of the most exciting areas are where you have a, have a dialogue between an architect of the past and an architect of the present. And we really don't want to freeze our, our cities in amber. And, and I think the point is just 
just making the case over and over again that there is, you know, Jane Jacobs, who was in many ways a peerless investigator of city life and someone who correctly saw the downsides of large-scale urban developments in the 1960s, also had this view that she looked at new buildings and noticed they were expensive and old buildings and thought and saw that they were cheap, which led her to conclude that the way to promote affordability was to make sure no one built any new buildings on top of old buildings. Um, just making the case over and over again that there is no free lunch on this, that in fact, if you say no to new development, you're saying that people will have to pay more for their housing and you ensure that families who want to come live in cities can't live there. That's, I think, part of the job of the economist in, in urban And space. have to live far out and drive for hours and so promote global warming. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Drive. The Berkeley environmentalist speaks. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, no, you're, of course, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely I think, right. I think that we live in Berkeley. We live a mile south of the university and a mile north of the Rock Ridge BART station um, in an extraordinarily you know, desirable area um, that someday will be the home of a 10-story apartment building. And the more of the consumer surplus generated by all the people living in that 10-story apartment building, I can move forward to me at some point through some transaction. The more of that I want. Yes, um, it's true. That's not the way most of my neighbors regard um, the importance of right. preserving the character of Elmwood, mm -hmm. yeah, which is a very, very nice place, um, which is why it can take you 25 minutes to go two blocks in your car. Um, you know, at rush hour, come past the corner of college and Ashby. But in some sense, this nimbyism is the opposite of what Ed was yeah. talking about when he was talking about a culture of, of, of innovation, of experimenting, of right. risk-taking, right? Yeah. It's sort of setting, it's facing, it's facing life and seeing fear in everything rather than yeah. thinking that life is meant to be an adventure yeah. and, you know, right. won't, it, right. won't it be an adventure right. to have some new neighbors down yes. that down yeah. the yeah. <clears throat> Or some new places to go. Yeah. Or some new things to do. Or having more places nearby. Um, or... You know, not having to drive 45 minutes to get a place, to get to a place that can make a decent banh mi, uh, <laughs> for example. Uh, let's, yeah. uh, in the longer run, right, um, that if we want to go to Ed Glazer's stuff, to regional location, right, that we started out having to live where the land would allow us to farm wheat, and then we moved to living near both where there'd be farmers farming wheat and also where there were minerals, and where there would be water courses that we could use to transport the minerals. And then in a slightly later age, we wanted to move to live in those places, plus those places where the railroad went through, and then those places that had developed effective cultures of engineering, of, uh, engineering practice and sufficient market divisions of labor that you actually could produce at efficient scale at a high productivity. Um, that is, we were resource-bound in our locations for a long, long time, um, now, with the coming of the container ship and the internet and so forth, um, you know, Shanghai is pennies away from San Francisco in the transportation of anything durable. You know, that it costs only a tenth as much to move a sneaker from Shanghai to the docks in Oakland as it does costs then to move it off the docks of Oakland to a running store shop in Walnut Creek where it can be fitted to the foot of my child by a crazed marathoner um, who actually knows what kind of shoe he needs if he's going to run across country. Um, that we really ought to be moving to a world in which we live based on amenities, um, both geographical amenities and also inherited urban amenities, people who have been lucky enough to create nice places where lots of people can live and as a result where land values are relatively high. And I think this is part of what we see. Um, in terms of differing regional urban price levels, even if part of it is simply the liking of um, kleptocrats from the Middle East and Africa 
for houses that put them under the rule of law umbrella of England in Mayfair and Kensington. You know, that people are willing to pay an enormous amount of money for access to a place where they can live under the rule of Anglo-Saxon law. Um, that's important, that's impressive. Um, and as this moves forward, you know, maybe not the low-hanging fruit, but there are gigatons of fruit to be gained from taking Ed seriously and figuring out how to maximize the transition from a world in which location is based on resource to one in which is based on amenity. Um, in the end of which, I don't know, maybe we all live in our colleges in San Diego. <laughs> so let's let's uh, bore into the land use issue yeah. because it, the, it's, it's really big. Yes. Uh, and uh, it also seems uh, like an, an immense challenge to do anything yeah. about because the decision makers are so decentralized. Uh, but also so the decision makers have not yet dug in their partisan, right, have not dug into their partisan trenches. Yeah on the issues. They're too complicated and yeah, too that, broad. For, for sure. Yes. Uh, so uh, <laughs> what do we do? How do we actually, uh, what, what stands any chance of making real significant headway in, the, in, in at least the areas where, uh, where things are, the distortions are worst, the, the big coastal cities? Right. There, there, are, there are a couple of different battlegrounds. The, the least important player in this is probably HUD. Uh, in fact, there's almost nothing that's going to be particularly helpful that's going to come out of the federal government, and that's one way or another. Which is not to mean, actually, that often HUD has the right views, from my perspective, on this, but their actual ability to influence things that are happening on the ground is very, very small. The yeah. other place where it doesn't make any sense to, to fight is small suburban homeowners' enclaves. You're never going to win. Affordability is a huge negative, remember, in these areas. I mean, affordability means the value of their greatest asset has gone down in price, right? There's no way that you've got any chance of, of making a case for liberty in those, in those so areas. How dare Zillow uh, report that there's an apartment affordable to a kindergarten teacher in my town? So, <laughs> so there, there are two places in which, in which we can find. Uh, one of which is actually in state legislatures, because, in fact, there is some sense in which um, you know, the state internalizes the fact that when a community makes it expensive, there are other people who, you know, would like to move in. This is why, of course, you know, the majority of American states don't have rent control because the state legislature has forbidden it. That's why Cambridge, which let me assure you, would never, Cambridge, Massachusetts, would never in a million years have gotten rid of rent control in Cambridge if it were not for the state legislature, which banned rent control in all of Massachusetts. I actually once, this is vaguely Cato-related, I once threatened to end every public, every public opinion that I wrote with the words, rent control must end, in the, in the Delenda Carthago-esque spirit. Um, the, uh, the, so state legislatures have a possibility of doing this. Um, and there are a variety of different models, either of bribing areas to allow more building or of just giving a get-out-of-jail-free card uh, in those areas. And we've seen a small amount of progress. It's tough. The areas in which the, the progress is much more immediate and there's much more of a chance for real movement is in big cities with mayors who are, you know, closely tied, who really want to see building in their area because of economic development benefits from it, because of alliances with a variety of other, other areas, because they've got affordable housing constituents that they actually care about. And whether or not we're talking about Washington, D.C., or New York, or San Francisco, or Boston, these are all areas in which leaders would like to see change, in which I think you actually have some, some hope, and the role of the academic is to, in some sense, both help them make wiser policies, but even more so give them pul public policy cover. For that and and those those are the areas in which I think there's the most hope uh, hope going forward. Um, Brad, one of your proposals is a dramatic expansion of uh, of immigration. It seemed like an indiscriminate expansion, just raise the numbers. Um, but from a from a growth encouragement perspective, uh, 
you can uh, push back against this if you want. Uh, I'm for I'm for liberalized immigration across the board, but on the mass low skill immigration front, I'm I'm mostly just wearing my pro freedom hat. Uh, whereas on the high skill immigration front, that strikes me as an is just about the simplest uh, uh, pro growth measure that we could institute. Or high money. Uh, I, I, what are the skills yeah. that they're bringing? Uh, I, the grad students who graduate here should stay here. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. The grad students who graduate from here should stay here. Or should, mm. um, but, you know, that is, we're really not sure what skills we're going to want to have in 20 years um, in any large amount. And there are an awful lot of people whose dynastic skill consists in figuring out how to pick up large amounts of loose change one place or another from their countries. Um, That auctioning off immigration um, slots um, seems to me to be almost guaranteed to get you you know, groups of immigrants who are not as likely to play well with others. Okay, what about point systems based on educational attainment like they have in Canada or Australia? Point systems better educational attainment or skills or particular skills or particular classifications. Um, and you know, there's also the fact that the person who walks on foot from Chiapas and manages to make it across the border, um, if you wanted a selection for entrepreneurial drive, <laughs> You know, that would be it. Um, If you truly are worried about people who are wanting to take risks um, and willing to actually do something important, life-changing, and big, um, you know, you'd set up some kind of obstacle course of that thing, right? That is, the people, the um, low-skilled potential immigrants who do not have access to very many resources (coughs) and who come from far away from southern Mexico or beyond and who have nevertheless managed to find their way here, um, they've done something very exceptional um, from where they came from. Um, And so I look at them um, and I think, first of all, um, aren't these the people who the holiday for Thanksgiving is made for? Um, And second, it makes me considerably less optimistic about the point systems and the selling of slots and market-based immigration policies in general. I think we should distinguish between innovatorship and uh, Mm -hmm. entrepreneurship. I mean, entrepreneurship requires hustle and and, uh, a determination to to get the job done, um, as Schumpeter said. but innovatorship requires insight, yeah. requires knowing a business. And, and so that, that would, I think, lead, lead us to want a different selection of people. You know, I just don't want to be ad hoc on this issue. I mean, I, I'm, I, I, I am at least as violently pro-immigration as, as uh, anyone else I know, and I just, I just want to make sure that that's... I, I just, you know, I, I would like to see, I'd like to see more less-skilled immigration. I'm with you that, you know, I want, I want points. I want, I want, you know, all sorts of skills being recognized. And I also, unlike, you know, Brad, because I, I, you know, believe in selling stuff, uh, I, I also very much am perfectly happy to also have, you know, have auction, auction rights as well. I don't, I don't see any reason why you can't, have, can't raise some money with this as well, as long as you're, you're letting in plenty of people of all, of all dimensions. I think fundamentally, as you alluded to, this to me is much, is, 
far more than just a sort of you know instrumental goal for U.S. productivity. This is a moral issue. This is a, this is I just I just don't like shaving my face in the future and thinking I get to enjoy all these fantastic benefits from being happening being born an American, and I'm going to deny that to somebody else who just wants to breathe the same free air that I do. Just to continue on the possibility that there is uh, there is a good economic argument above the humanitarian argument. Explore the uh, the impact of, of uh, declining population growth in all the advanced economies and what impact that may have on innovation, entrepreneurship, dynamism. Uh, if we just focus on GDP per capita, it seems like declining population shouldn't matter. Uh, uh, and yet, uh, you, can, uh, you, can picture, you, you can picture population growth affecting innovation incentives in two different ways, in positive and negative ways. So on the positive side, growing <coughs> markets mean the prizes for innovation are larger than they otherwise would be. On the other hand, lots of cheap bodies around uh, sort of reduce incentives for clever labor-saving machinery. And so uh, it could be that, uh, that uh, sort of dependence on, uh, on labor-intensive, low-productivity operations becomes a sort of a dominant business model in lots of sectors where it otherwise wouldn't be. So uh, we, uh, we can choose. Uh, so for purely internal demographics, our, uh, where our native-born population is, is at replacement level just about, as opposed to most uh, developed countries uh, where it's uh, falling uh, or it's below fertility level, uh, Japan is actually having falling population growth now. Um, uh, but we, because of our uh, attractiveness of our, uh, uh, to immigrants, could ramp up population growth pretty much to whatever we want. Uh, do you have any sense of, uh, of economic criteria by which to judge optimal population growth? Or is this just something that should be decided on completely other grounds? Well, on the political economy level, as opposed to purely economic level, we have made promises to our middle-aged, both in terms of Social Security and in terms of Medicare, it would be rather harder to meet if we went to zero population growth immediately than if we had 1% per year population growth for the next 50 years. And so if you want to take a potential political crisis off the table, this is a good way to do it. You know, my, my perspective is tends to be on the, on the cities and housing side. And certainly when you think about the doldrums that the American construction industry has been in over the last six years, the painfully low rate of household formation that has existed since the since the Great Recession has has been a huge part in that. I mean, one way to see this is by by my estimates, we overbuilt about two million housing units at least during the during the Great Boom, which normally, given that we then reverted from almost two million housing units a year to six hundred thousand, you could have worked that way through fairly quickly if the rate of household formation had stayed at 1.3, 1.4 million units a year. However, of course, it crashed down to 500,000 units a year, so we were barely, you know, we were barely, our reduction in the number of new housing units was barely enough to add anything to working through that extra stock. And uh, having a higher rate of household formation would be deeply helpful if you wanted to boost the size of the construction industry and get that, get that back up. There's also a question as to what it can, can do for the declining cities of the U.S. And it's less clear that, that, in fact, new immigrants really want to come to Detroit. But certainly, certainly they have been a godsend for the dynamism of the old mill towns around, around Boston, which have been largely switched in a sh relatively short number of years to being overwhelmingly immigrant. And, and you can feel the positive, the positive effects of that. Well, 
900,000 shortfall in household formation a year for six years is 5.4 million households. That's a huge number of notional households that aren't there. What are they all doing? I, I, I think they're playing video games. Uh, yeah, they're up. Where does, uh, does demographic change, particularly the aging of the population, does that fit into your view of, of declining uh, dynamism? Uh, the uh, aging isn't normally associated with rare exceptions yeah, with right, right. Uh, adventurousness <laughs> and uh, intrepid outlook. Me and Verdi, yeah. Uh, um, I sometimes am startled to find that, gee, I wrote a paper on that subject, and, and I did actually. Uh, I, I pointed out that the more minds you have in a society, the, uh, the higher the probability that uh, any given number of new ideas will be produced by that society. Uh, so uh, we certainly don't want to shrink down small. Uh, somewhere in, in my book, Mass Flourishing, I, I do comment about the explosion of cities in, uh, in Britain in the 17th century. Mm -hmm. And then I think in, in Germany, the number of cities went from one to 100 between uh, 1800 and 1900. And that had a lot to do with, uh, with the uh, intellectual ferment in uh, Germany in the last decades of the 19th century and, and the rate of, rate of innovation that they uh, cranked up. Um, I suppose it's true that uh, on, on the whole, older people uh, are not as... Uh, um, Maybe they're too invested in their old ideas to be receptive to new ideas or to think a lot, think a lot about how can I destroy my idea last week, uh, this week. I'm not very inclined to do that. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I, so I guess. Uh, but uh, another aspect of this is that I think if an entrepreneur in a company deciding whether to attempt an innovation or to make some investment, or both. Uh, think if, if, if he or she um, sees the market is expanding because of population growth, it, it's uh, more likely that the entrepreneur will uh, take a chance on, on the new venture. So I, I think there is something awfully attractive about rapid population growth. The, the problem is simply that at some point, we're not going to know where to put them, yes. and, and they're going to uh, create overcrowding. Um, not the main subject of today's conference, but lurking in the background uh, is uh, not the pace of growth, but the distribution of the gains from growth. Uh, we saw that uh, chart that uh, Eric put up and others, perhaps, of uh, productivity growth versus median wages, and the gap is growing. Um, we had Martin talking about this possible how these <clears throat> how this inequality issue can intersect with the growth rate issue by perhaps creating a dual labor market labor market um, you uh, just mentioned that uh, your uh, your greatest worries aren't so much about the pace of growth as about rising joblessness and that it seems like a growing fraction of the uh, uh, the American uh, population is uh, uh, doesn't have skills that people want to pay anything for, and therefore uh, they are being discouraged and dropping out of the workforce one way or another. Uh, Ned, you, uh, this is something that, uh, that is very uh, in the wind right now. We're all worried about robots uh, taking all of our jobs. But Ned, you wrote a book, I think it was 15 years ago, Rewarding Work, came out in 99 or 98. 
Uh, so uh, where you addressed the issue of, of declining attractiveness to work uh, of work to less skilled uh, people and uh, proposed a policy nostrum to deal with it. Yeah. The book in question is uh, Rewarding Work, published in 1997. Not 10 years ago, as I incorrectly said, which is a sign of my own age. <laughs> the, there, uh... was, there was a new printing in, uh, <laughs> in uh, 2007, I think. Um, uh, I, I argued that um, the, the free market, uh, I know we're here at Cato, but I have to say the free market is, is, is simply not a solution to the problem of uh, marginal uh, and, and, most, and uh, mostly highly disadvantaged uh, workers, there's, there's, there's got to be some sort of intervention in the market while keeping competition and, and, and all that. And uh, so I, I uh, proposed um, a system of uh, subsidies uh, to be paid to employers according to the number of low-wage employees on their books. And uh, it's as if the, the disadvantaged worker who comes in the door will, 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 will offer to the employer not simply the prospect of, of uh, his or her productivity, but in effect, he or she brings the, the subsidy. So this, this, this uh, causes... Uh, theoretically will cause the firms to respond by uh, taking advantage of this good deal. Uh, and that will, um, the increase in demand for low-wage labor will, will then uh, increase employment, pull up wages in the process, and, and um, that will have all sorts of so social benefits. Kids will grow up seeing their parents with something to talk about at the end of the day, kids will uh, uh, understand that their parents are involved in society's main project, its, its economy. And uh, the, the social effects are all extremely positive, I think. And, uh, and, and there, there's, there's nothing uh, uh, ipso facto uh, uh, wrong about a subsidy. There are good subsidies and there are bad subsidies. Um, way back in the, uh, in the uh, Teddy Roosevelt uh, era, uh, of the people who called themselves progressives, uh, they came to argue, I think correctly, that look, uh, none of us, no, no one individual of us would have the wage rates we have uh, if we weren't cooperating with one another. We drive up each other's uh, wage rates. There's a kind of social surplus that comes not from just everybody's productivity it working in isolation, but the the interactions of people, which en it, which enhance productivity. And and uh, the the progressives argued that out of that surplus, we can afford to to to. From that surplus, we can finance uh, subsidies to, 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 to disadvantaged workers and without hurting, without causing uh, the, the advantage to be worse off the, than, than, uh, than they uh, would have been had the uh, disadvantage not been around. 
that's just the, uh, the advantages to the advantaged of having disadvantaged people to work with is shared, partially reallocated to the uh, disadvantaged workers. Just to frame your proposal in a slightly more Cato-friendly way, rather than, <laughs> rather than dolloping another subsidy on top of our already gigantic uh, complex of social policies, uh, our, we're worried about uh, uh, re reduced incentives to work. We're worried about declining labor force participation. We're worried about the social dysfunctions from mass idleness. Uh, and yet our public policy on many different margins actively discourages work, uh, and particularly our social policy. Uh, but our tax policy, too, it's... Yeah. Fund based on taxing labor, uh, and then our social policies on many different margins, uh, from SSDI, disability insurance uh, uh, eligibility, uh, to the high implicit marginal tax rates for benefit phase-outs. In many different ways, we actively discourage work. So I think uh, one could see this as, as, rather than more government intervention, a change in government intervention from discouraging work to supporting work. Well, Absolutely. And we're never going to get to a place in which we're going to make our economy sufficiently red in tooth and claw that, you know, the, the, the one-fifth of people who are now jobless are going to be willing to go to, go to work, you know, rather than, rather than you know, accept disability payments. I mean, we can't just work on it by making things worse off for the unemployed. We actually also need to change the incentives to work, to work as well. And, you know, it is just one in five. We're heading to one in five primary adults who are jobless. This is a, you know, this is a national catastrophe. This is a huge waste. And we have to be willing to experiment on this. And I think it, you said it exactly right. This is how we should think about this. It's part of a package. It's part of a package that means a reformed SSDI system, which is absolutely crucial. And in many ways, less generous payments in other settings. But we have to also reward work. And this relates to innovation again. If you have people coming out of the... Out, 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 of the, out of disadvantaged places in, in cities and becoming part of the economy, that, that opens up new innovative opportunities. Uh, uh, so, so not only will, will we have, have a better society, but we'll also probably have a livelier economy if we open it up to to the various kinds of disadvantaged people who were on the sidelines. Okay, let's uh, let the audience in on the fun. Um, you've heard the drill about giving your name and affiliation and ending your question with a question mark. Uh, right, this lady right up here in front. Yeah, my name is Amy West. Here comes the mic. Oh. Or the mic comes to you. <clears throat> okay. I teach at Penn Law School. My name is Amy Wax, and I apologize I missed this morning. So if this topic came up, uh, you can ignore this question. But I wonder what role you would assign in the decline of the nuclear family, especially in the bottom 50% of the population, as described by Charles Murray, to our economic fate, and then relatedly for Professor Phelps, the sort of uh, over-regimentation of childhood in the top of the population. Uh, and then for Professor DeLong, relatedly, on education, isn't the probably problem not that we have a mediocre teacher core, although we do, but the grip of these dysfunctional progressive ideas in education? <laughs> Where to begin? 
<laughs> I'll, I'll just uh, respond with a, with a fact, which is if you take the Raj Chetty, John Friedman uh, measurement of opportunity, meaning where does the average person in the 25th, born in the, in the 25th percentile of the income distribution in a metropolitan area end up? Do they end up in, on average in the 35th percentile or the 45th percentile? It's a measure of economic opportunity. The single strongest correlate of that variable across metropolitan areas is the share of children living in two parent families. The single strongest correlate of economic opportunities, at least as measured by them, is how intact the families are. I, I'm not going to say more than that. I'm just going to, I'm just going to uh, lay that out as a fact. Okay. Um, well, as someone who actually learned math through the new math, <laughs> was happily doing things. It was just the Tom Lehrer song, space, Brad. It was just you learned it all from well. Tom Lehrer. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah. and they actually, the Sidwell friends had a in New Math guru in the 1960s. And I took to it like a duck to water. It was absolutely <laughs> wonderful. Um, no, absolutely wonderful for me, almost truly not so absolutely wonderful for a bunch of other people. Um, look, I mean, I think, let me channel my teacher and friend Claudia Golden. Right. That what really matters um, is the coming of the pill, is the coming of reliable birth control. Because once you have that, you know, an overwhelming majority of women want to have one child. Most want to have two by the time you get to three and four. Um, and then once you shift from a world in which you're expecting to have eight pregnancies, um, six of which will come to term, two of which will die in infancy, um, one of which will join the church, one of which will get whomped by a streetcar or something before they reproduce. By the time you've moved from eight pregnancies down to two, assumptions about the societal division of labor that assume that women are going to spend you know, 72 months, six full years pregnant, and then 12 full years breastfeeding um, don't fit anymore. Um, and we have to adjust to that, and we have to figure out how to adjust to that. Um, and here I want to go to Naomi Khan and June Carbone's book, um, which they provocatively titled Red Families, Blue Families, um, and proceeded to write the anti-Charles Murray. Um, that is, Charles Murray is moralistic and is all about how there's a loss of social discipline, um, especially because the upper classes aren't being good role models and aren't properly thwacking um, the lessers for being lesser. June and Naomi are much more that, you know, after a generation of social turmoil and hate ashbury and turning on, tuning in, and dropping out, um, that largely college-educated America managed to find its way to a place where a whole bunch of childbearing is located in the 30s, um, and where the assumption is that there are going to be two careers for this household and it's going to be very much of a partnership. Um, but you go back to other parts of America where this sociological transformation has not yet taken place. Um, and what you have is you have people who are very strongly discouraged from being sexually active outside of marriage. So you have a lot of very early marriages before people really understand what they want and what they can live in. Um, after which you promptly load an enormous amount of responsibility for establishing a career and for earning um, a living wage, a career wage, a wage that can sustain a family, um, onto the male, right? the 23-year-old, 21-year-old male member. And if they haven't done well in college, 
then unless they happen to belong to the Church of Latter-day Saints and have the enormous social support network that that church provides. You get enormous divorce rates. Um, you get low kind of numbers of children raised in um, two-parent families. Um, you get what Charles William Julius Wilson used to call the marriageable male problem applied to the black community, but with what's happened to relatively low-skilled wages over the past generation, it's no longer particular. It applies to the entire low-skilled half um, of the American population as well. Um, and, you know, Naomi and June being kind of upper-class, liberal, democratic, progressive, college professor types, um, think the answer is to continue the culture war. Um, you know, that you know, relative sexual activity fueled by the pill in your 1920s, marriage and childbearing in the 30s, aiming at two children, etc. This is a pattern that works relatively well, as opposed to others that do not. Um, I'm not sure that's correct, and it seems to me the Church of Latter-day Saints um, definitely as a sociological institution is astonishingly successful, um, whatever I think of their particular theology, um, but that we do need to find ways to figure out how to deal with these sociological economic problems. Um, and I don't think that simply thwacking the lessers for their lack of moral fiber is going to get us through that. Turning to dysfunction on the other side of the socioeconomic scale, the questioner mentioned uh, the, uh, uh, the effects of helicopter parenting and uh, an incredible uh, protection of kids from every possible harm and breeding of an entitlement mentality that everything should be there automatically. So do you, do you see those trends as fitting into your of cultural decline thesis or declining intrepidness? Well, I certainly don't see them as helpful. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 haven't, I admit that I haven't looked at them as uh, pr primary uh, culprits. Uh, no. Okay. Um, one more question. Uh, let's go in the back. Put your hand, yes. That's him, in the light blue shirt. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, my name is Sangin Park, I'm from uh, OMB. Uh, my question is uh, for Professor Drong. Uh, I'm, not, I'm unclear about your position about the uh, monetary policy. Uh, it seems like you are advocating for targeting uh, <laughs> nominal GDP. But what people really care about is, uh, you know, real income and the real return. And uh, I don't know how we do reduce uh, uncertainty and, uh, in, you know, promote economic growth. Um, yes, people care about real incomes and real returns. Uh, but before you get to there, you have to have an economy in which spending is equal to income at full employment. Um, that that's the only way the economy, market economy, has a real chance to find a good allocation. And saying? spending is equal to right, potential um, at full employment, equal to income at full employment, only when people are happy holding the stock of safe and liquid financial assets that the economy actually provides to them. And it's the central bank that ultimately controls the stock of safe and liquid financial assets. 
And so Milton Friedman's original idea was you manipulate the money stock in order to match the supply of money to the demand uh, for money at full employment levels of income. That suffices to get you to macroeconomic balance. And because Uncle Milton thought that velocity was fairly stable, except when disturbed by banking panics and other things, if you have a K percent money growth rule, um, A, it'll get you there, B, you can see when the Federal Reserve is going wrong, you know, both as a monetary policy and also as a way of guarding against mistakes by the central bank. That unfortunately turns out not to be true, and there are lots of theories and lots of arguments and lots of answers about balance sheet recessions, about zero lower bounds, about liquidity traps, about other things. Um, that complicate the story and say that simply keeping the growth of monetary base constant isn't going to do it, um, and you have to do more. Um, and the question is, how much more do you do, and what more do you exactly do? Um, is it simply that money is valued as a liquid asset, or is it mo that money is valued as a safe asset? Um, or is that expected inflation is too low, or the future price level is too low? Um, is it that the expectations are that even though you're doing everything that's necessary and appropriate now, people fear it will be reversed? Um, lots of things to try, lots of experiments. Um, I remember I had a conference with Lars Svensson from Sweden um, back last week when he was talking about how one thing that has in fact lost purchase recently were his own plans for how to get out of liquidity trap, um, which was that you target the exchange rate. Um, and you say, we're going to have a crawling ban for our exchange rate. And if we're a country that has an aggregate demand deficiency, we're going to say that the exchange rate is going to crawl down in value over the next 20 years and stick to that simply as a way of making people confident that our policies of quantitative easing won't be reversed. Um, and I don't say anyone has managed to cover themselves with glory here. Um, I would say that the goal is ultimately to figure out what is a neutral monetary policy for this economy. Uh, the problem is that past ideas of people who thought they had established a neutral monetary policy um, have not turned out so well whether it was inflation targeting that was supposed to save us. Before that, it was supposed to be kind of money stock targeting. Before that, it was supposed to be monetary base targeting. Uh, before that, it was supposed to be Irving Fisher's nominal GDP growth targeting. Um, Hayek had a nominal GDP level target. Right? said that any monetary policy that did not produce a fixed level for the total of nominal GDP was kind of unsound and bad to lead to disaster somehow. Um, which left me scratching my head about what was supposed to happen with population growth. Before that, you have Isaac Newton's declaration of what we really need to do is fix the pound to gold. None of those have really covered themselves with glory over the past um, 300 years. On that note of uh, <laughs> we, that we don't have all the answers yet, uh, let's wrap this panel up. Uh, thanks the participants very much. <laughs> <laughs>